There was one festival to which all looked forward, for it was the only one held in winter. It went on for a week, and on its last day at sundown there was a merrymaking called the Feast of Good Children, to which not many were invited. No doubt some who deserved to be asked were overlooked, and some who did not were invited by mistake, for that is the way of things, however careful those who arrange such matters may try to be. In any case, it was largely by chance of birthday that any child came in for the 24 feast, since that was only held once in 24 years, and only 24 children were invited. For that occasion, the master cook was expected to do his best, and in addition to many other good things, it was the custom for him to make the great cake. By the excellence, or otherwise, of this, his name was chiefly remembered, for a master cook seldom, if ever, lasted long enough in office to make a second great cake. There came a time, however, when the reigning master cook, to everyone's surprise, since it had never happened before, suddenly announced that he needed a holiday. And he went away. No one knew where. And when he came back some months later, he seemed rather changed. I was pointing out last time that the Christian life is simply a process of having your natural self changed into a Christ self. Alright, welcome to the Inklings Variety Hour, where a handful of Inklings enthusiasts read and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis, J.R.R. Tolkien, Charles Williams, and others. I'm Chris Pipkin, Assistant Professor of English at Emmanuel College in Georgia. Megan and Annika are still wandering through their respective perilous realms of graduate school and legal work, but I have the pleasure today of welcoming one of my old students to the podcast, Cora Burton. How you doing, Cora? Good. How are you? Doing well. Doing well. Cora is a recent graduate of the Master in Historical Linguistics program at the University of Georgia, and during her degree wrote her thesis called Lexical and Thematic Peculiar Mood Development of Fairy Language in the Germanic Cauldron of Story, which I am super excited to hear how this applies to Smith of Wooden Major. Speaking of which, Smith of Wooden Major, published in 1967, is Tolkien's last work of fiction and was begun as part of an introduction to an edition of George MacDonald's The Golden Key. But Tolkien began as he was preparing this introduction by writing a kind of parable about a stupid baker making a cake for children that inadvertently had something fairy in it. At first, the stupid baker was like kind of supposed to be George MacDonald, as horrible as that <laughs> sounds. Like, I don't think in the end the character of Noakes is meant to be George MacDonald, but I think the way that George MacDonald approached fairy, he was kind of because there's so much Victorianness about it. When he found that this parable or illustration was taking on a life of its own, he discarded the introduction entirely and worked on the story. Now, Smith of Wooden Major is a short story, a parable about the nature of what Tolkien called fairy, an evocative fairy tale in its own right, as well as a melancholy meditation on the loss of artistic capacity. Though told simply enough for children to understand its plot, Tolkien called it an old man's book. Yeah, what did, what I think did that's you... so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, that it's an old man's book. I mean, it does have that melancholy sense, right? But it also feels 
like a nice little escape. It's also hits on this idea of fairy as very personalized and individual. Like he's the yeah. only person who gets to start. You know, he doesn't get to take anybody with him. But you, because you're the reader, you have this special privilege to also go and experience it. And I'd read, you know, somewhere like, oh, it encapsulates what Tolkien calls the fairy. And I'm like, well, now I have to read it. And it Definitely does, but for like a lot of different reasons. And I am looking forward to talking about that as, as we work our way through the story. Yeah, yeah. I'd forgotten that it was the last thing he ever written. And I was thinking like, oh, I can see like the incipient places where all of these themes that I end up seeing woven into The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings and his like kind of main mythos. It's so similar to some of his other children's stories in, in tone, like Farmer Giles of Ham and others, which are also illustrated by Pauline Baines. But yeah, it was interesting to see that kind of close to the end of his career, he's going back to some kind of simple and childlike, but illustrates a point that he really, really cares passionately about and, and is a good story in its own right as well. We'll go ahead and get into the story. So we've got this village, Wooden Major, right? Which existed not long ago for those with long memories, nor very far away for those with long legs. And it was called Wooden Major because it's bigger than Wooden Minor. And uh, As naming conventions go. That's right. That's right. <laughs> um, yeah, he's just, the simplicity that he cultivates here is just so much fun. You know, it had a kitchen, capital K kitchen, right? A village council, capital V, capital C, a master cook capital M, capital C, just very plain names for things that are basically what those things are. And then the passage that we read at the top, the cook is important in this village because he's the cook that makes the great cake for the 24 feast or the feast of good children. The master cook at the beginning of the story goes away on a lot of journeys. He comes back one day, and this is really what kicks the whole thing off, comes back one day with a young lad, probably about 13 or so, who everyone calls Apprentice, and he calls Alf. He was more lithe than the wooden lads and quicker, soft-spoken and very polite but ridiculously young for the work, barely in his teens by the look of him. Still choosing his apprentice was the master cook's affair, and no one had the right to interfere in it. And then the master cook goes away on another journey. No one is sure where, leaves behind the, the apprentice, who's probably like 15 or so, and the council, the people in the town kind of decide there's ridiculous to let a 15-year-old be the master cook. we got to appoint this guy who's been dabbling in cooking and who's been trying to get hired. So they appoint Noakes, but they keep Prentice around, right? They keep Alf around, and it comes time to make this cake, and Noakes is a little bit nervous. He gets into a box that the old master cook left behind, expecting to find spices, doesn't find those, but finds a silver star, which he kind of says, oh, isn't this funny? And Alf says, no, it's not funny. And he'd never spoken to the master in that tone before. The apprentice hadn't. Indeed, he seldom spoke to Noakes at all unless he was spoken to first. Very right and proper in a youngster. He might be clever with icing, but he had a lot to learn yet. That was Noakes' opinion. But of course, He's the one who's doing all of Noakes' work for him, mostly, right? What do you mean, young fellow? He said, not much pleased. If it isn't funny, what is it? It is fay, said the Prentice. It comes from fairy. Then the cook laughed. All right, all right, he said. It means much the same. But call it that if you like. 
you'll grow up someday. So Noakes decides he's going to make a cake after that theme because, of course, all children like fairy and all children like sweets. And, and Fairies are for children, after all. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and Noakes figures, you know, the one you grow out of, the other you don't necessarily. And so he creates this big fairy cake, uh, mostly with Prentice's help or Alf's help. And even though fairies look so diminutive and saccharine in this cake, something of real fairy comes through. And on a symbolic level, of course, that thing is the star, which, uh, which one of the children uh, manages to ingest. <laughs> um, but before we go further with the plot, I was just wondering, of course, since your MA is in linguistics and you wrote on this, so far we've met a guy named Alf, which is not the puppet from the 80s sitcom. Right. <laughs> and, uh, and also we've heard the term fairy. And I was wondering if you have any insight as to what those words mean. What is an Alf? Where does the term fairy or, or fae come from? Tolkien knew what he was doing here. You know, starting with Alf, any native English speaker, you'll think, okay, well, that sounds like elf. So when you get to the history of the word Alf or elf, our modern English elf is a development of Old English Alf spelled with the ash symbol that denotes that back of the mouth ah sound. It was really indicative of how old a soul Alf is here because it's thought that the Proto-Germanic root Alb is where we get words like modern German Elb, Norse Alfred, you know, they all mean Elf. It's thought that that Germanic word comes from the Proto-Indo-European word for white or, or bright, albo. And this is presumably where we get words like the Latin albus. You think albus Dumbledore, you know, the one with the white beard. It is not our abilities that show what we truly are. It is our choices. And then for fans of Shakespeare, if you think back to Midsummer Night's Dream, King Oberon, Oberon is a carryover from Middle High German Alberish, which is just the elf word and the king word slapped together. There are lots of dwarf and elf kings in medieval native Germanic stories. For philologists like Tolkien, this character Alf carries this whole framing along with him. I don't know that this is etymologically related, but it often gets translated as Elf King, Erla King. There's this poem by Goethe. It's called the Erla King. It's a poem about a father who's riding through a wood with his son, and his son keeps saying, Mein Vater, mein Vater, the Earl King is, is trying to get me. And the father keeps saying, oh, it's just your imagination, boy. Don't worry about it. Don't worry about it. Mein Vater, mein Vater, und hörst du nicht, and then, of course, when they get back, the son is tot. He's dead. If you ever hear it set to music, it's incredibly dramatic. But it just makes me think of, most of the time, fairy kings are not super nice. <laughs> they're like, they're like or, or elf kings, you know? It's just interesting that for Tolkien, he makes the elf king, who, by the way, folks, if you haven't read this, 
you should read it before listening to this. It's a short read, I promise you. It's it's you can get it on Amazon in audible form even for like three dollars. But yeah, Alf ends up being the Elf King. But he's such a nice Elf King comparatively, anyway. Um, and, and maybe nice. Not just word, comparatively, but... like he's going out of his way mm-hmm. to bring fairy into this very like normal you know you see one every day kind of town at first i I was kind of like oh this must be something that you know it's so simple it must be something that tolkien just kind of dashed off the way that lewis always would it's it's not as elaborate as his like silmarillion stuff but then reading it uh, reading reading kind of the notes that tolkien made he made a lot of notes on this story he worked out a backstory and a timeline and who's related to who and all this stuff and i haven't gotten through all of the notes yet unfortunately he viewed what alf was doing as kind of a rescue mission for the people of wooden major that alf was trying to sort of re-enchant wooden major he saw the sort of stupid smug self-satisfied views of people like noakes as becoming increasingly prevalent round about the year 1000 apparently because that's the, <laughs> that's the year that it's set in according to Tolkien. i love that <laughs> uh so yeah people are becoming way too pragmatic and you know dismissive of fairies and things like that and so alf steps in as prentice kind of working in concert with the master cook whose name apparently is Ryder. i always forget that because it's mentioned like once <laughs> yeah yeah well, in the notes at the end of the Flager edition that like Tolkien made, he just like calls him Ryder. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's it's like he he cares about the human world and he cares that the humans aren't becoming too smug and self-satisfied and stupid. They need to kind of redemption through fairy in a way. But what is a fairy? The use of fey and other fairy words in this story, I just imagine, you know, Tolkien sitting there like giggling to himself, you know, as he writes this not really argument, but it's a conversation where he's really playing out the exact sort of argumentation he's talking about in On Fairy Stories, which I think you guys have talked about on this podcast, right? Yeah. When Noakes finds the star in the box, you know, Alf is is telling him what it is. It's like, it's a fae star. And it results in this little like semantic argument, at least in the way it sounds to to people who kind of don't necessarily know what Tolkien was doing here. You know, Noakes picks it up and says, well, it looks funny. And Alf says, no, it's it's not. It's fae. And it comes from fairy, F-A-E-R-Y. And the word fae, F-A-Y, is a member of like associated words that are all tangled up. They ultimately come from the old French term for fairy like a little creature, at least the way we think about it now, because thanks Victorians, um, we think of all fairies as little winged creatures. That word itself comes from the Latin fata, the word for the fates, you know, taking that into account. Linguists tend to think that the the words for fairy and fate, they come from the Proto-Indo-European word baha, um, which means to speak. And so that makes sense because fate is what is spoken and it comes into being, right? In this way, fairy, in whatever way you happen to spell it, <laughs> comes from the same etymological ground and fairy just is fae with that suffix 
that eerie, you know, that that which is fae. So as soon as Alf says that the star is fairy, Noakes counters that this doesn't change how silly it is. It's still very silly, but hey, it's fairy. And here he spells it differently. F-A-I-R-Y. And that'll ah. just delight the children. To Tolkien, fairy, F-A-E-R-Y, and fairy, F-A-I-R-Y, are not at all the same thing. They're completely different. And he uses this at several points during the story to point out this worldview difference between the people of Wooten Major and Alf, especially because, at least in my edition, and I don't know if it was the same for you, when fairy is spelled out, it's italicized. Hmm. Let me look. Let me look. Let me make sure. Yeah, yeah. So when, yes, it depends. So when Prentice says, it is fey, that's italicized. Later on, the cook says, Noakes says, just the thing, especially if it's fairy, he snickered, but mm -hmm. I assumed that that was, are you talking about in Smith or are you talking about in... Uh, on fairy stories? Okay. Yeah, the section that you're looking at, at least in yeah. terms of, you know, when the emphasis is really important to note the difference between the two, right? Mm -hmm. And then at this point, I'll also just say for nerddom's sake, that Proto-Indo-European word, ba, it may have been two words, actually. We're not really sure if it was one word that had diverging definitions or if it was two words that sounded the same. We also get words like fantasy and phantom from that second ba. So it's crazy how like fairies and fantasy, they came from pretty much the same etymological ground, which is just super neat. That is cool. That's super cool. Yeah, this is super, this is super cool. And listeners, once you start going down this rabbit hole, you will continue and continue and continue to go down because there's <laughs> just so many connections and so many interesting words. Um, there are some good um, philology and history of the English language um, uh, resources and podcasts as well that I'll, I'll maybe link to in the show notes. To call them nerdy is to diminish them. It's drinking from the fountain of word, right? Um, yeah, you're and, honestly and, right. And it, it gets so much closer to, I think, in a lot of ways, what Tolkien was doing with his Middle Earth world was he made a language and wanted to put a world in it. Yeah. Not only did he make different languages like Kenya, but he also developed proto-languages and pre-languages because he just loved studying that so much. That is really cool. It's nice to know that, you know, if you ever run out of languages to study, you can always just make your own. Oh, yeah. A couple of other interesting things, uh, just word-wise, are the names of the different characters that everybody kind of has a name that has to do with their function in, in what makes major except for noakes his name kind of implies that he doesn't necessarily do anything useful despite the fact that he's like despite the fact that he's like kind of garishly you know supposedly pragmatic right and doesn't doesn't care for fairy thinks it's silly thinks it's a waste of time but he himself is not contributing in a great way to to the community and and kind of kind of takes a cynical view of things in general and thinks he knows everything they put the fey star inside one of the slices of cake or, or 
apprentice does anyway, Alf does, and Cook, you know, says this to the children. One of the children who's there, whose name is Smithson, because he's the son of the Smith, ends up eating the star, but he doesn't know it. And this again, this is after seeing this cake with this little tiny diminutive fairy on the top, mm-hmm. right? right? Like Victorian style. But nevertheless, something of fairy has actually passed on to a Smith. All the same, the Silver Star was indeed a Fae Star. The apprentice was not one to make mistakes about things of that sort. What had happened was that one of the boys at the feast had swallowed it without ever noticing it, although he had found a silver coin in his slice and given it to Nell, the little girl next to him. She looked so disappointed at finding nothing lucky in hers. He sometimes wondered what had really become of the star, and did not know that it had remained with him, tucked away in some place where it could not be felt, for that was what it was intended to do. There it waited for a long time, until its day came. The feast had been in midwinter, but it was now June, and the night was hardly dark at all. The boy got up before dawn, for he did not wish to sleep. It was his tenth birthday. He looked out of the window, and the world seemed quiet and expectant. A little breeze, cool and fragrant, stirred the waking trees. Then the dawn came, and far away he heard the dawn song of the birds beginning, growing as it came towards him until it rushed over him, filling all the land round the house, and passed on like a wave of music into the west as the sun rose above the rim of the world. It reminds me of fairy, he heard himself say. But in fairy, the people sing too. Then he began to sing, high and clear in strange words, that he seemed to know by heart. And in that moment, the star fell out of his mouth and he caught it on his open hand. It was bright silver now, glistening in the sunlight, but it quivered and rose a little, as if it was about to fly away. Without thinking, he clapped his hand to his head and there the star stayed in the middle of his forehead and he wore it for many years. And Smith began to, as he began his sort of trade as a, as a smith, um, in his smithy, he begins to make these, you know, all, all of the practical things that he makes have a kind of grace to them. And then he makes other things that are beautiful. He, he occasionally will will leave town and go away. That's, that's kind of more or less what I would call the beginning of the story and sort of the setup, mm-hmm. right? Anything in there that I, that I left out that we haven't talked about that we definitely should? We're definitely going to talk about in the middle section is this notion of danger dangerous fairy. And I think this really starts, at least to me, when Noakes is serving his great cake. He's so proud of it, even though he like barely did anything. And I'll preface this by saying, like we've talked about before, how fairies is spelled differently at different points. Every instance of fairy in this passage is spelled F-A-I-R-Y, that diminutive version. The children looked at it, the cake, with wide eyes, and one or two clapped their hands, crying, isn't it pretty and fairy-like? That delighted the cook, but the apprentice looked displeased. And then skipping forward, when the cake was all eaten, there was no sign of any magic star. Bless me, said the cook. Then it can't have been made of silver at all. It must have melted. Or perhaps Mr. Prentice was right, and it was really magical, and it's just vanished and gone back to fairyland. Not a nice trick to play, I don't think. He looked at Prentice with a smirk, and Prentice looked at him with dark eyes and did not smile at all. This is odd and very scary, because you've read about, and you've been conditioned sort of from the introduction of the story, 
to identify with Wooten Major as an everyday kind of town. It could be your own, you know? It wasn't that long ago. It's not that far away. It's a mix of good and bad people. And so even though Noakes is this cynical, pretty unlikable character, at least at the outset here, you're sort of inhabiting his perspective. So to have this outsider, this this person that's been othered by the community, who's not laughing at jokes, and he's making these dark eyes at you, it, it feels very peculiar moody <laughs> yeah i can't tell if i'm supposed to be sympathetic towards noakes or or not but i can definitely see how i might especially if i don't begin with some kind of healthy respect for fairy yeah right and maybe now. it comes from the complacency of starting out the story not necessarily knowing where it's going when you pick up a story like this written by tolkien or anybody of the inklings you know you know where you're going but not exactly where you're going yeah um, yeah. So I think in that mindset, it's still kind of jarring. Yeah, it's interesting too. I, and I don't know if Tolkien's notes happened like this, this particular note. I'm, I'm not sure if he wrote it after the story was written or if this is what he was thinking all along. But he actually said that Prentice or Alf actually wanted Noakes to become the new master chef because he figured if he could get at the heart of the corruption of mm. Wooten Major, then there was a better chance of like redeeming the people in general. And Noakes was the Noaxiest one of, you know, <laughs> of, of everyone in the town. There's a kind of holiness here. Yeah. Um, and a kind of the anger or, or at least like glowering of Alf is interesting and it gives you the sense that Noakes has committed some kind of sacrilege here, right? Right, like you're stepping on something you are not supposed to. Yeah. talk about too i guess before we get to the middle section the beautiful illustration in this book pauline baines who like i really just need to on this podcast do a whole episode about pauline baines you should uh, i feel like she's an honorary inkling at mm -hmm. least yeah what, what strikes you about the artwork in this the fact not only that like you said she illustrated so much of Lewis's work and Tolkien's work. You're already primed to know that you're opening up a fairy story or, you know, something that is supposed to be sort of cozy. Not always, but it, it signals sort of a return to childhood in some ways. If you grew up reading her illustrations alongside the works, like I actually didn't initially. I first, quote unquote, read the Narnia books by listening to audiobooks. And I think they were, I, I believe that they were a focus on the family production of audiobooks where mm -hmm. there were different um, voice parts and things like that. So it was very immersive. But then I went back and read with the illustrations and it's almost like it adds a whole nother coat of paint to what is already something very beautiful. So I think particularly in this story, she really did a good job of making the story feel medieval in ways that the prose yes. really didn't make it look <laughs> or mm -hmm. feel with these almost illuminated page looks to them of characters sort of standing side by side in their very tall and willowy pious demeanor yeah it's very stylized it does very much look like an actual like the narnia books it seems like she's more drawing medieval 
people, but in a more sort of realistic, conventional yeah. illustrator sort of way of doing it. It seems like by the time we get to Smith, she's really leaning in on the very stylized, like drawing medieval stuff like a medieval person would. Mm -hmm. uh, the, With covered heads and everything. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The way that the hands are sort of stretched out, right, in the fingers, the way that the cloaks fold. Occasionally you get, you know, th things look a little more realistic. You would have had in a lot of medieval stuff, but, but yeah, mostly, yeah, really interesting, very, very stylized illustration. Anything else about the beginning uh, before we head to the middle? No, I think I'm ready to head into Ferry. All right, let's head into Ferry. Listeners, for us, this will be instantaneous, but you know that time works differently in Ferry. So for you, unfortunately, you'll have to wait another week to hear the second half of this conversation. Thank you all for listening, and join Cora and me next week as we speed trippingly into, <laughs> uh, into the realm of, of Ferry. Thanks for listening, as always. See you all next week. See you next week. encounter full of joy unscheduled on the decent fan with here an addict of Tolkien there a Charles Williams fan